Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is David Kemp. Previously a minister in the uh, federal government, but in particular, the author of a project on the history of liberalism in Australia, five books, Land of Dreams, How Australians Won Their Freedom, 1788 to 1860, A Free Country, Australia's Search for Utopia, 1861-1900, A Democratic Nation, Identity, Freedom and Equality in Australia, 1901 to 1925, and just released early this year, A Liberal State, How Australians Chose Liberalism Over Socialism, 1926 to 1966. David, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. In your work, you, you, you really show the history of what you, what you call, I notice, the Liberal Project in Australia. Can we start by telling me, what is the Liberal Project? Well, the Liberal Project um, uh, is a story about um, implementing certain ideas and principles that Australia embodied in its foundation because of the uh, timing of that event. Um, the British arrival in 1788 uh, occurred at the time of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment uh, provided various ideas, three main streams of ideas, I argue, in the books about um, human society and humanity and how it should be governed. Uh, and those, those ideas were essentially that freedom work is responsible for that sort of idea, that a free economy will actually be more effective and prosperous than uh, an economy directed by the state. Uh, the second stream of ideas I'd call the humanitarian stream, which um, in the book I argue arises from particularly the campaign against slavery by William Wilberforce, which was a Christian input, uh, which led to the idea that there was in fact a common humanity, regardless of people's race or colour. Yes. and that all human beings should be treated equally. There was a utilitarian stream which came from Jeremy Bentham, uh, which was that government could actively reform institutions according to basic principles. And in particular, of course, his, his guiding principle was the uh, greatest happiness of the greatest number. Uh, but uh, in a broad sense, it um, uh, was a way of saying that active government can contribute to human freedom and human dignity. So those three are Smith, if you like, if you like Adam Smith and the economic view, yes. Wilberforce and the ideal, the Christian humanism, and yes. uh, the non-Christian but hard-nosed utilitarianism of Bentham and, and, uh, and uh, Mill, I guess, after that. Thank you. That puts it very well. And the, the other element I would add to that, which really emerged after the the British arrival and in Britain and Australia was the democratic idea, that the way in which you would realise these ideas would be through democratic processes. And uh, that was fought out in, in Britain uh, after the Napoleonic Wars in particular. Um, and Australia, uh, which had the benefit of many transported chartists here, um, was one of the very first countries in the world to implement uh, democratically elected and that sense, manhood, suffrage-based institutions of government. And it's really the, the tensions between those three strands which comprise the unfolding of the Liberal project over Australian history. 
Australia had an opportunity to create a society dedicated to the free human individual in a way that very few other countries did because it didn't have the burdens that Europe had from histories of wars and medieval regulation. Uh, it didn't have the violent birth of Canada. It didn't have the slavery of the United States. It didn't have the entrenched aristocracy of Britain. So the Australian Foundation was particularly favourable to the unfolding of a project to uh, implement the ideals that uh, came with the, the ships uh, that uh, sailed into Sydney Harbour, Port Jackson, uh, in January 1788. There's one, there was one set of losers out of that event, the Indigenous people of Australia. Did, did, did the Liberal project, in effect, have to proceed by ignoring them? Well, the original intent of the British arrival was that the Aboriginal people would simply be absorbed into the new society uh, because um, uh, they were human beings and they would become British citizens. Mm. Uh, the, um, of course, the ideal was quite unrealistic um, and you could say that over the first uh, 40 or 50 years of the British settlement, that ideal was betrayed. It was found impossible to implement and it was uh, superseded by the idea that the Aboriginal people needed protection uh, and a series of protection regimes were implemented um, over the rest of the 19th century and indeed uh, right through the early part of the 20th century. The intention was good, the intention was humanitarian, but those regimes were based on race-based uh, legislation um, and they ended up uh, establishing essentially a bureaucratic tyranny. Uh I look forward to hearing you further as you write about this in your, in your fifth book. Um, what really surprised me, by the way, I can't congratulate you. The books are, I, I've come to the books late in life and find them very interesting and very readable. I'm, I'm really, I'm going to, um, you've got one fan here at least. But one thing that surprised me in your very opening is you say that although we didn't fight a war of independence, Australia did not gain it without a political struggle against policies by the government, which they had no part, and even a massacre, which were more people killed than at the Boston Massacre of 1770. I've, I never thought of Australia like that, that liberalism, that these, these ideals of, of economic liberalism, human, ide, uh, human humanity and uh, utility needed to be fought for in some way. Can you unpack that for me, please? Uh, yes. It, one of the um, aspects of the books that I'm, I'm pleased with is that in telling the story of ideas in action, uh, it uh, discovers events which largely have not figured in our standard histories of the country. Mm. And uh, in that first volume, one of the things that really astonished me uh, as I dug into it was the discovery of um, a serious political crisis in Australia um, during the 1840s when transportation to New South Wales was stopped uh, in 1840 and all the convicts were sent to Tasmania. And by the late 1840s, the belief was that the free society that was being established in Tasmania was under threat and that there was a need for a, what we might call now a nationwide, but then intercolonial movement to stop that threat and to demand 
the ending of transportation. Uh, and the campaign against transportation became a, a massive political campaign that united the colonies, that extended to London, that got um, parliamentarians in London on side and eventually uh, threatened to buy, stop by force convict ships arriving. Wow. And um, By force? By force. They, they, would, they would stop the convict ships actually arising. And there was a lot of talk about force and indeed um, an American-style independence uh, that transmitted itself to London and uh, eventually the British government decided, uh, and there's a big context to that, of course, that they would end transportation despite throughout that whole campaign denying that they would do so, that they would end transportation because of the forceful character of the colony's resistance. Um, and then um, following the decision to give the Australians independence within the empire, they agreed that the, the only way to govern Australia was to allow the Australians to govern themselves. And um, in the course of um, attempting to do to draw up constitutions to do that, uh, the massacre occurred on the Victorian goldfields uh, of miners protesting about taxation without representation, which was the miners' licence, and the, the failure of the British to give them the rights of English people. Uh, so there was a, a very, very forceful resistance, which in many ways went through the same stages as the American uh, War of Independence, but mm -hmm. without violent force, because the British government in the uh, 1850s was under the control of liberals Yes. Uh, who believed in liberalism and conservatives who realised that the forceful suppression of the Americans or the attempted forceful suppression of the Americans had failed as a policy. And, and, and the choice that they felt they faced was Australia in the empire or Australia outside the empire. Yes, yes. I must say I, I, that that's fascinating and I do think it'll help us today to understand our achievements if those stories are, are better told, actually, I think. And thanks for telling them. Um, am I right that one of the themes that, that you've discovered is that that liberalism is, well, it has to keep reappropriating re the country. It's constantly, there are challenges. And as the, things develop, liberalism faces new oppositions and new challenges uh, as, as over the hundreds of years that it's been here. Yes, the, the books tell a story in which liberalism is constantly um, under challenge and even threat from illiberal ideas. Some of those ideas are cultural. There are ideas, for example, of racial prejudice or gender discrimination, but some of those ideas are ideological. And, and the, diff, the enemies of liberalism are generally ideas which focus on the, the rights of collective groups, of categories of people rather than individuals. They're ideas which say that individuals can be sacrificed for the good of the the whole, uh, whereas liberalism believes that every individual is a precious being and uh, that the state should uh, be protecting individuals and that the morality of the society should be based on relations between individuals. And so in the 19th century, we had the rise of utopian socialism, uh, which in its extreme form uh, was communism. And one of the other things that I discovered uh, in writing volume two was that 
in um, uh, the late uh, 1880s, early 1890s, uh, there was actually a communist program developed by the Australian Federation of Labor and uh, which became the basis really for an approach almost to civil war in, in outback Queensland. Uh, and this was called the Bellamy Program. And uh, Bellamy didn't call his uh, utopian society communist, uh, but he just said it was a, a natural development of the capitalist system and resistance to it. But it was, in effect, a complete communist program involving the nationalisation and state control of industry um, and, and the planning of the society by the state and the deprivation of, in, by, of individuals of their liberty. That, 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 that major alternative of a kind of a utopian socialism, um, I didn't realise it was so early, but I assume that that was a major issue in the matter you deal with in your more recent book from the 1926 to 66 with uh, the interwar, in a sense, the, the, the loss of confidence in liberalism between the wars, it's, it, it seems to me, after the First World War, there was a real, uh, the, the idealism of the, 19, of the 19th century suffered a terrible blow, and also in Australia, which led a real challenge to liberalism. Am I, do I, am I reading it right? I agree with that statement, yes. Um, the First World War was devastating for liberalism, uh, both in Britain and in Australia. The Liberal Party, uh, that Deakin had founded uh, was uh, forced in the end because of the First World War to submerge itself into uh, the Nationalist Party uh, formed around Hughes's breakaway National Labor Party. And uh, the utopian socialist idea really became dominant in sections of the Labor Party. And that dominance was expressed finally during the Great Depression in the land government in New South Wales. Uh, which at its Easter conference in 1931 uh, passed by a very large majority a resolution to put New South Wales into a three-year transition to socialism. And, uh, and, and, and they, they, they meant real socialism, I assume. They meant, meant real socialism. There was a discussion at that conference over whether the Labor Party should remain as a constitutional party or whether it should become a revolutionary party. I had no uh, idea. And, and, and the society became divided really in a quite frightening way between um, various paramilitary groups. The, the major liberal conservative parties collapsed um, and a, a new political movement emerged under the leadership of the, the breakaway Labor treasurer, Joe Lyons, called the United Australia Party, which uh, merged with the, and brought on board really the, um, the former nationalists and got Australia out of the depression. But the third volume um, and fourth volume really tell the story of how Robert Menzies, as the main voice of liberalism from the late 1920s on in Australia, uh, revived the liberal project uh, and um, brought the liberal project uh, back against a huge conventional wisdom that capitalism was finished. Uh, it was really... He, he fought a war against political correctness and, if you like, an identity <laughs> politics based on class. Yes. Uh, and, and in 49 um, brought with him into government a the most highly developed thinking about how you established a liberal society and what its characteristics were that we had seen in Australian history. Um, 
uh, since the early, the very early days. Let me just pause and to tell you what I'm, who I'm talking to. I'm Rob Forsyth, and my this is Liberalism in Question. My guest today is uh, is David Kemp, AC, who's a retired politician, but really his main project now is to write the history of liberalism, the challenging and interesting history, often under not known history of liberalism in Australia. And you've just drawn attention that Robert Menzies, you say in particular, is a great hero of, of this story. Is there a sense in which Menzies' achievement can be owned not just by those who are still big L liberals and party liberals, but by Australians in general, in that we have now, despite all our troubles we may have today, there's a sense in which Australia is no longer threatened by that kind of threat that had to be dealt with in the, between the wars. I think are, are, are we all liberals now, I'm sort of asking, I guess? Well, I think, I think in a broad sense, the answer to that question is yes. Yep. Um, I, I argue in the books, in fact, that from the 1890s, uh, the Labor Party was essentially a part of the Liberal project. And it was a part of the Liberal project because uh, it was a party that agreed to operate within the Liberal institutions that had been established to accept the results of elections. Uh, it was a party that uh, wanted a better life for individual people. Uh, but it was always torn, particularly with the influence of utopian socialism, uh, over the issue of how far one should conduct politics as a class conflict and how far one should focus on lifting and improving the lives of the individual members of the working class. And so I do use the concept of liberal socialism to contrast mm. with utopian socialism and after the Second World War, liberalism was triumphant. Um, the, the departures from liberalism were seen to have failed. Um, uh, there was the Cold War, of course, uh, which took that story right through into Volume 5 territory, uh, the collapse of Soviet communism in 1989. But even by the 1950s, it was clear that the utopian project was struggling um, in Australia. Internationally, it was still had life. I mean, we still had the Cold War. We still had the advance of communist nationalist movements uh, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Uh, but in, in Australia, the utopian socialist slash communist project was in real trouble. Yes. Um, and um, uh, I, I will argue um, in volume five that in fact, um, uh, by the time Whitlam came along, it was dead in terms of uh, a significant influence within the Labor Party. Does that mean those who believe that liberalism is the best of the possible human options, I don't think liberals have ever been utopian, I don't think, that it's, it's all is well now, there's there's no threats? No, I, I don't accept that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, in fact, that the utopian spirit is always there and all it needs is an intellectual type of formulation to gain renewed life. The utopian project is always an urgent project. It's that we can't leave certain goals to be realised over time. We must achieve them now. And uh, these days we see the utopian spirit revive in identity politics, um, in, in critical race theory. Uh, we find a sort of moderate version of it in what we might call woke attitudes which subordinate merit to collective identities. Um, 
in a way, it's not very different to the early upsurge of utopian socialism, except that the identities now are not class identities. Uh, they're oh. identities of uh, race and gender, particularly. David Kempty, are you saying, in fact, that one of the great enemies of the Liberal project is actually utopianism? Yes, I am, yes. As a, a style of political thinking, um, which really builds on that aspect of human nature, which says that these ideals are so good that we have to realise them now, regardless of the costs. Uh, but what is missing from utopianism, uh, by definition, really, utopianism is uh, the statement of impossible goals. Yes. Uh, utopia uh, means an impossible no. society. It means, it means no place, actually. It was coined by, coined by, uh, by Moore. <laughs> exactly. So Thomas More really developed yes. the idea uh, of utopia. And, and, of course, it's always a, a, an argumentative issue whether or not a goal is impossible. And that's where I contrast ut liberalism with utopianism um, and, and some other ideologies. Um, I'm going to ask, when, when liberalism arose, just around the time of the, the, of the European settlement in Australia, the main opponent wasn't utopianism, it was something else. The main opponent of liberalism at the time was really the survival of medievalism, the highly regulated state-centred society. Uh, yes. under a dominant aristocracy in Britain and, and under monarchs elsewhere, uh, active ruling monarchs elsewhere, reigning monarchs, um, whereas the, the monarchy had become constitutional by the time of George III, essentially. Um, so liberalism was not then against utopianism, although there were utopian efforts, but they were mainly at the community level. Yes. The idea of a society-wide utopia was what utopian socialism in the 1880s under Edward Bellamy developed, and, and Marx, of course, with the communist idea. And it was based on the liberal goals, if you like, um, of human dignity in a society without... Um, human equality? ...and dictatorships. Yeah, and and, and the equal dignity of human beings, the individual dignity. These are virtues which are commanded by many socialist Utopians? That's right. I, I think they are the virtues, but of course, what socialism fails to grasp is the essential requirement for freedom if dignity is to be realised. You can't be both a slave and have your human dignity recognised. Yes. You can't be told how to live your life and have your human dignity recognised. Whereas liberalism is an intellectual tradition of these. Uh, various strands that we mentioned earlier, libertarian, humanitarian, utilitarian and democratic, uh, that is an accumulation of wisdom. It's not an ideology, an accumulation of understanding about how human society works, whereas utopianism refuses to accept that because it's largely focused on one goal. You oh. can have a libertarian utopianism as well as a socialist utopianism. Uh, provided you want to organise society according to one objective, whether it's equality or or, or liberty or a, a pristine environment and everything else is subordinate to that, uh, then you've departed from liberalism and entered the utopian area. That's very interesting. So to be a liberal, you've got to be both patient because 
patients are obviously a crucial matter and aware that there's constant well, trade-off may not be the word but there, there are multiple goals and multiple goods to be preserved at the one time rather than the one to be kind of, yeah does this mean it's is it is liberalism vulnerable you must you're telling the story of liberalism australia it must have weaknesses and vulnerabilities that that from time to time show up because of its very nature i think it, it has a, a vulnerability and of course there are attempts at liberalism historically and in other countries that have failed. Uh, it's not easy to construct a liberal state because some of the liberal ideals um, are in tension with identifications that people have that give meaning to their lives. I mean, one of them, for example, is nationalism. Um, another one um, uh, is um, uh, gender. Um, another one is race. People identify in various ways with these ideas and others use them as a foundation for prejudice. So there's always um, the reality of social life at any historical moment right. that can uh, provide a challenge to liberalism at that time. I think what is remarkable is how Australia, through its democratic processes, has managed to discover the liberal elements in all those threads and increasingly succeeded in weaving them together. And I would say that that's because of the nature of the foundation, because immigrants came to Australia seeking control over their own lives. And that is a very fundamental aspect of human nature that is strongly represented in Australia and not yes. quite as strongly represented in all other countries that aim for a liberal society. So Australians have had that advantage. Um, and I think a, a politician like Menzies, who has sought to establish a liberal case for political success, has found in Australia a tremendous response to the liberal appeal. And provided you have people who can make the liberal appeal, and make the case, I think Australia is more likely to offer uh, a positive political response to that than almost any country in the world. Which leads to my very next question, as you were saying that, it has to be, the case has to effect be made from over and over again. Um, are, are we doing it very well making that case? I know when I had Tim Wilson in my first, Tim Wilson, the, the uh, uh, Liberal Party uh, Member of Parliament in Victoria, he thought that the moment, just at the moment, uh, it, the case wasn't being well made for it, and he thought it has to be remade again. Do you, have, do you share that view? Well, I think that's a recurrent issue with liberal politics in a democracy. Because of the challenges, you, you need the exceptional uh, capacity to make that case, and it's not always made because the political parties have to make it, and uh, the political parties contain people who can make it, and uh, there are some very brilliant liberals in Australia at the present time who can make that case perfectly well. But political parties also become ladders for ambition. Do tell, David. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to watch out for this. Um, oh, okay, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> you need to combine personal ambition with the ability to make a liberal case, yeah. And by liberal, you don't just mean be the liberal party, but the liberal case made also from... Uh, the the, the other main party in Australia as well, 
That's right. And, yes. and, and you do see that um, looking at, at recent um, Labor governments, how many of their initiatives fit perfectly well into um, a Liberal program. Well, unfortunately, our conversation, it could be as long as the time you've, the centuries you've described. It's such a fascinating area. In the world, a big, step back to the big picture for a minute, David Kemp. Uh, something's happened in the world that I didn't think would happen. That is, we have a now genuine case being made by autocracies as being better forms of government than, 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 than liberal democracies. I didn't think I'd ever see that, uh, but I'm seeing it. Well, it's not the first time, of course. We had dictatorships in Europe during the 1960s. Yes, but, but I know, but I, although I was born in the late the end of the 40s, I think there's a way in which it seemed, I, I, well, I guess it was serious for the communist regimes. How do you think this is going to end? Uh, are you anxious about the rise of autocracy as not just an, a reality, that will always happen, but as a fact, saying that, particularly I'm thinking of China and uh, perhaps also Russia I mean, as it changes, as it's changing, claiming to be a better form of government and liberalism effectively just a passing, a passing moment in the human story. Yes, I think the reverse is the case, that, that liberalism is a tremendously profound and wise philosophy of government. Uh, it's really the great world political project whereas autocracies come and go. And the reason they come and go is because they don't work. We know that an autocratically run economy can't be as productive as a free economy uh, that uh, really motivates people to um, invest and produce and take risks and innovate and be creative. Uh, we know that autocracy doesn't work. So when I hear people saying, well, Perhaps China's autocracy is uh, going to win over liberalism. The answer is obviously it isn't going to in the longer term, but we certainly do have to watch the accumulation of huge power at the centre that autocracies can temporarily achieve for themselves. That doesn't mean they're workable societies, but it does mean that militarily they can be very threatening enemies. That, that's a very strong message to us to be on the alert. So David Kim, having reviewed 200 plus years of liberalism in Australia, you remain optimistic about the future of liberalism. I do. I, I think op liberalism is really the best way in which we can aim at a society where every person does have human dignity and enjoys the freedom in which that dignity is recognised. Thank you very much, David. Our time is up. My guest has been uh, David Kemp, uh, the author of since a project about the Liberal Project, <laughs> historical project, Liberal Project. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. And I can recommend to, to you, uh, if you want to um, follow that up, uh, getting hold of David's books and, um, and immersing yourselves in them. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.